0: Good morning. Praise the Lord. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Starting in verse 23, and if you don't have it, it might be easier this week just to listen anyway. I have the New Living Translation, which I would venture to say probably nobody has the New Living Translation right now. Someone does. Okay. I just like the way that they they wrote it here, and so that's why I used it. But just listen to this. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall. For the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. The godly always give generous loans to others and their children are blessings. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, we just ask that you would, uh, Lord, you would speak into our life and uh, bring uh, joy and, and goodness and uh, benefit to our life, Lord, help us and uh, help us understand and speak directly to us today, Lord. In uh, your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. Every time we come into the house of the Lord, um, we want to really search the Word and find um, those things in the Bible that are going to um, help us. It's going to make life easier, life better, life more blessed. How many know God wants to bless us? And so God gives His Word so we can be blessed in everything that we do and there are some things in life that um, cause us to not uh, be able to receive that blessing there's certain how many understand that there are certain behaviors certain attitudes um, certain things in the bible that we just aren't obedient to what god says if you do this it'll be a blessing and and god truly wants to bless his people Wants to bless every person on this earth. How many know that? God wants to bless. And so as we go into this chapter 37 of Psalms, it's one of my favorite Psalms. And uh, it's written by King David. And how many noticed on there, uh, David said, I was young, but now I am old. So one thing we learn very quickly from this Psalm is this is David as an old man, King David. And um, he's looking back retrospectively um, at his life. And uh, David, if you're not aware of who King David was, one thing that's very interesting to note is his son was King Solomon. And if you read the book of Proverbs, it was really put together and largely the work of King Solomon. And you, when you read it still today, it's probably the greatest work of wisdom that's ever been assembled and uh Solomon was said to be by Jesus himself uh the wisest most intelligent person on the face of the earth before and after that period of time so uh Solomon learned so much if you read his writings from his father David so he learned that the knee of David and David was just a very unique uniquely faithful person to God and sometimes we forget he was a king over a world power because kings very rarely show the level of humility and the faithfulness to God that King David had. So King David was the writer of this psalm. And as you begin to look at it, in fact, we don't really appreciate this psalm nearly as much as probably they did when he wrote it. Um, David also in his lifetime was the greatest musician probably in the entire world at that time. He uh, wrote thousands of songs and just was very brilliant. Even Solomon wrote so many songs. And so when David wrote this, it was written as an acrostic, which means that every other verse started with the letter of the alphabet in successive order, and it was arranged most likely in song format. So you can imagine just how impressive this probably was when he originally wrote it. But when you begin to look at it, this is a psalm, that really begins to express to us a certain emotion that David is addressing that will really help us in life if we keep a check on it. And that emotion is how many have ever went around and the very first verse we read said the Lord directs the steps of the godly and and, and in the Bible there are two kinds of people. There's what's called the godly and those who are called the godless. And so a very simple separation of people that are on the earth is there are those who have God in their life, meaning that I want God in my life and I want to hear what God has to say for my life. That's what the Bible calls the godly. And then there are those, how many of you know somebody that says, man, I have no use for God. I hate God. I don't want God in my life and really have no use for church at all. And that's what the Bible would call the godless. They're without a God. So the godly and the godless. And so they're speaking to the godly here. But sometimes we try to do what is right. We say, man, I want God in my life. I want to uh, live the way God wants me to live. I want to have the right emotions. I want to love people the way God wants me to love people. And we try to do good and we try to do what's right all the time. And then we look around and we say, wait a minute. That person is godless and they have so many good things in their life. How many have ever noticed that? And you say, why do I always do the right thing? Why do I always try to do what God wants me to do in life? And how many, just be honest, and and how many have ever just stopped and said, why am I trying to do what's right? And you've gotten upset because there are people that just aren't at all. And it seems like God is blessing their life. And so David really addresses this because you're at a great danger of just stopping what you're doing and say, if I can't beat them, then I'll just join them. How many have ever felt that way? How many have ever felt that way this week? Okay, that's too close to home, right? (laughs) All right. I can say i felt that way. And sometimes you stop and you say, man, why am I doing this? Why am I going through this? Why do I even try? You know, I do what's right all the time, and it just doesn't seem like I'm being rewarded better than the person next to me. And so David is trying to clarify why you should never allow yourself to feel that way. And he's doing it as an older man who's looking back on his life. And so I just want to bring your attention first Um, have you ever played a game and then, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody just said, Hey, let's play this game. And they totally change the rules and you think you're winning the game and you actually lose the game. And I was trying to think of times that happened because how many know if you're very competitive, how many are very competitive? Be careful. This might be a sermon about overly competitive people. No, it's not. Okay. But if you're really competitive, when they're reading the rules, think about it. What are you doing? Like, okay, so, I gotta do this to win, and I have the most of these, then I win. And if I acquire this, then I'm gonna be the winner of this game, right? And so you're trying to gather that information. I was trying to think of a time that the rules were changed on me one time. And it's funny, the only one I could think of was we were having a minister, a local minister's meeting one night, just a fellowship meeting with all the ministers in the area. And it was Pastor Rod and I were going to that meeting. And so at the last minute, they told Pastor Rod, they said, uh, we want you to have a little icebreaker game before the meeting. And uh, he was like, oh man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And and we were going down to the meeting, and right as we were getting there, he said, I got it, I got it. He goes, let's go buy the uh, grocery store, and let's buy a uh, package of toilet paper. And I was like, oh boy, this is, this is going to be really good. And, um, and I kept asking, what are we doing? What's the game? You know, because I'm competitive, I want to know the rules, you know. And I said, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. And uh, so anyway, I was sitting next to him. And it comes to the point of the icebreaker, and he hands everybody one roll one roll of toilet paper he passes around, and I'm to the left of him. And so he says, everybody take some toilet paper. So he passes it to me, and I pull off, I start to pull off one, and he goes, no, 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 take a bunch, Chad, take a bunch. And I was like, some of you probably know the game. So I pull a little bit more, he goes, take a bunch more, a bunch more. And I was like, surely he's helping me here. So I took quite a bit, pulled it off, passed it to the next person. Everybody else he let just take one. And so the game was, you've got to share different things about yourself, and for each piece you have, that's how many things you have to share. So I had to share like 20 things about myself. And uh, so my point is, that it's really important to know what the rules of the game are. The rules of the game determine everything. In fact, if you at the end of the game, who's going to be awarded the winner? The one who know the rules there's a winner right there. We've got a winner every minute, all right? And see, I scripted that. Good job. But if we don't know the rules of the game, how are you going to win the game? And in life, there are losers and there are winners. There are those who win at life and there are those who lose at life. And we've been conditioned to believe that the winners are the ones that have the most things. The winners are the ones that you look around and we're keeping score. Sometimes we look around and we say, well, man, they've got this, 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 and this, and and look what I have. You know, and we, we're trying to keep score, and we're trying to determine, and it's not about winning and losing, but it's about, you know, succeeding in life and accomplishing what God's wanting us to accomplish in life. And the problem is, you can be doing everything right serving God, and you look around at the culture and start saying to yourself, wait a minute, I'm not winning. And you stop serving God, and you start doing what everybody else is doing. And that's what this Psalm is about. We can't do that. And David's trying to get us back on the right track and make us understand. In fact, title of my sermon is who wins at life, who actually wins. And so we got to figure out number one, who's making the rules, you know, who's making the rules to life. And ultimately the Bible is about Jesus Christ being named the victor at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to be revealed as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's going to be the one making the rules. He's the one that's going to reward us in eternity. And he said he's going to reward us based on how we behave. He's going to reward us based on our faith in him. He's going to reward us based on a set of criteria. How many know that Jesus Christ is the one who determines who the winners and the losers are? He's the one that determines the victors and the ones that aren't, the ones who will be rewarded and the ones who will be punished. And so the game of life, really, if you want to know the rules and Jesus ultimately is the victor, Then we better find out what the rules of life are, and that's what Psalm thirty-seven is all about. And so, as you go through Psalm thirty-seven, it really breaks down real nicely into three sections, and I'm only going to cover the first two today. But chapters are verses one through eleven, and verses twelve through twenty-six. So, as you begin to go through verses one through eleven, before you start looking at David's, actually trying to tell us. In verses 1 through 11, why should I have faith in God based on the fact, let's be honest, if we look around and we base it on the fact of what we're seeing in front of our eyes, then you've got to say to yourself, why have faith in God? Because some people aren't doing it and they've got all these things that they're doing and they seem to be doing all right. Why should I have faith in God? And 1 through 11, we'll talk about that. Verses 12 through 26, uh, we'll talk about why I should be content with God and not seek something else to make me happy. How many know that's important? Because if you choose not to be content with God, then you're always going to be finding something that will satisfy that. So it's either be f- content with God, live the way He wants me to live, or abandon God and find something else to fill the void. Because the Bible says we were created for God and nothing else. And God can make us happy, God can make us content, God can give us a full life, and God will give us peace. If that's not true, then we're going to abandon that and go find something else to fill it, right? So as we go in here, the first thing I want to look at is the life of David. Because if you're struggling with life, and other people have nice things, and the person who's telling you just be content with what you have... And that person is the king of the world and very wealthy and lives in a palace. How many would have a hard time listening to his counsel? Like, ah, you're okay, you're poor, just be happy with it. Well, yeah, you're king, David. All right, but this is David looking back at his life and telling you the experience that he had for a lifetime. So let me go over a little bit about David's life so you'll understand Why he's qualified to tell you this. David is the, his great grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabite. How many know that? His great grandmother was Ruth. She was from Moab, which is a people that were not Christian people, were not godly people. Um, She was desolate. She had nothing. And she came to Israel because she originally was Jewish, married a Moabite man. He died. She, uh, her family, uh, her sons died. She had nothing. And she came with nothing on her back and literally came into the welfare system of Israel. Uh, when you see her picking up grain in people's fields, she literally is on the welfare system of, of, of Israel. During that interaction, she meets. A man by the name of Boaz is the great-great-grandfather, or the great-grandfather of David. And so they get married, and it's kind of a rags-to-riches story. This Moabite woman who has nothing gets married, and David is the great-grandson of that relationship. And so David is the, um, he has lots of brothers, and um, God just speaks to a prophet and how many know David is a very obscure person? Nobody knows David. Nobody knows his family. God just tells Samuel, hey, there's a certain family. And because this king of Israel, the first king of Israel, Saul, is wicked, I'm going to actually find somebody that is after my own heart. And so David is very young. He's not even a teenager yet. He's probably about 12 years old. Let me get down here. He's only about 12 years old. And so he um, is anointed to be the next king while, da- while Saul is still king. He said, well, man, that's awesome. Man, I would love to be 12 years old and be anointed the next king. But this is a nightmare for David. Because from that point forward, Saul started to look cross-eyed at David. Now David, the reason God anointed him is because he is in love with God. How many know he's a very lowly shepherd? Probably the lowest occupation you can have is just to sit out in the field and protect the sheep. Which means he smelled a little funny. How many know sheep have a funny smell to them? He smelled a little funny, always a little dirty. He was the backward kid that stayed out there with the sheep. Um, wasn't a probably a well-to-do family and, uh, and and his beginnings are a little dubious because uh, there's a statement that says he was born in sin. And also Jesse wanted to show all the other sons, but didn't want to show David. So we don't know. There's a lot of speculation. Why do they say that? Is there something different about David's birth? Is there something about him that's different? But the father obviously was embarrassed and didn't feel like David was the first one. That the prophet needed to see. So David is very humble. David loves God. He's in love with God. David uh, is going to take food to his brothers. He's about 17 years old, still doesn't have a lot of money, right? Um, Saul still looks at him funny. Uh, But David sees that the entire military is scared of a giant that's probably nearly 10 foot tall. He's a champion warrior. Nobody wants to fight him. And just get past the fact that he's that big. There's so much scientific proof of men that were this large and warriors in that period of time. But he's a giant. Nobody will fight him. His name's Goliath. David is willing to die than to hear them talk about his God negatively. And he says, I'd rather die than hear this man talk about my God. And so David is the only one with enough courage to stand up to the giant. And guess what that did for David's life? It made him a fugitive. Saul hated David after that. Not because David ever did anything. He served Saul, served in his court, was the captain of the army. But Saul began at that point to try to murder David. And how many know David became a fugitive from the law? That means he had nowhere to live. Uh, he had to live in a cave. And when we say live in a cave, you say, well, he probably had pretty good accommodations. It's probably like the back cave. But no, it's more like somebody today saying, go live in the woods. David had nowhere to sleep. He slept in a cave. Uh, w- there was a national manhunt for David. I want you to imagine this, living in the woods as a fugitive and a manhunt for your life from the president of the United States and the U.S. military. That's the equivalent of what David had. So all through his 20s, you say, well, I can handle that for a week. To know that I'd be king. David didn't know that he was going to ever make it to be king. He just had a promise. But everybody around him was looking for him for his life. He was living in a cave for many years. And all through his 20s, he had nowhere to sleep. And so he goes through his 20s, manhunt for his life, several moments. He could have killed Saul and ended the manhunt. But he wouldn't do it. Saul would leave and go back to his palace. David would leave and go back to his cave. I mean, no, that has to take a lot of humility. Poor, nothing to eat. In fact, there were certain periods of time, get this, David went to the city of Nob. Do you know why? He was starving to death. He was begging for bread. So wait a minute, didn't he just say in that psalm, he'd never seen the righteous beg for bread? Guess who begged for bread? David. He went to Nob to ask Abimelech. said, hey, do you have any bread? Me and my men are starving to death. He went to Nadab. Nadab was a man that uh, had people raiding his property, damaging his property. He wasn't a very nice man, married to a woman named Abigail. And David and his men bravely defended this man's property. And he went to the man and said, hey, we are hungry. Can you give us something to eat? And he basically said, get lost. I mean, do you see God's righteous? There's nobody better than David, I don't think, at this time. Poor, fighting for his life, nowhere to sleep. He's almost 40 years old before he becomes king. So yeah, he's qualified to write this book. He trusted God through all of that and all he had was a promise on his life. And so he's going to begin to write this book and so I want to hear what he has to say. I want to see what this righteous king who is now, he dies around 75 years old, you know, um, and, and let's see what he has to say about life now that we know, because he does say he's an old man now. And so as you begin to look, in fact, let me give you this scripture. The Bible is trying to tell us what faith is, okay? I mean, it's important to know what faith is, isn't it? Because this book is about trying to have faith all the way through life and not losing our faith in God. How many know the culture we live in right now? Very easy to lose your faith. There's so much pressure to not serve God, not do the right thing, not live for God and And Hebrews defines what is faith. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe first that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if I'm going to have faith, the first thing I have to do is believe that God rewards people that seek him. Now, if the enemy can convince me that somebody is just as blessed by not serving God as they are, if they do, then how am I going to serve Him and have faith? It's not true. And so God wants to stress that as we begin to study this. But now let's look at what He says. Let's look at verses 1 through 11. Now I don't even hardly have to preach this. You just have to listen. This New Living Translation, listen, it says, don't worry about the wicked. In fact, this is why I have New Living Translation, because every other translation says, do not fret. And while that's a good word, nobody uses Fred anymore. Not very often, okay? I like the word worry here. So don't worry about the wicked. I could stop right there, couldn't I? How many have ever worried about the wicked? (laughs) Just be honest with me. How many have ever just spent a little bit of time saying, well, man, look at them. Well, what do you know? They got a brand new whatever, you know, look at them. Don't worry about the wicked. Or envy those who do wrong. Ever envied people who do wrong? For like grass, they will soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they will soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, Don't stop doing good. He's a rewarder of people who seek him. Don't be fooled by the people in front of you that aren't living for God. Because they're going to soon fade. They're going to soon wither. How many have seen those spring flowers? As soon as they come up, they're gone, right? And that's what he's saying here. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. How many would rather God give you the desires of your heart than go acquire it on your own? I'd rather God be able to say, hey, this is what I want in your life. This is what I want to bless you with. And it says, commit everything you do to the Lord, trust him, and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn, and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. That means you're going to stand out by the way you live your life, right? Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Listen to this, verse 8. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. Can I tell you, we're walking around sometimes upset with God over the things we see around us. We don't see that God's a rewarder of our behavior. We just see that everybody else is getting away with it, right? Stop being angry, turn from your rage, do not lose your temper, it only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, and those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Soon the wicked will disappear, though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly will possess the land, will live in peace and prosperity. Now let's begin to look at this first stanza, the first 11 verses here. And the word trust, do you notice the word trust sprinkled in there several places. God's saying, trust me. You can trust me. Have you ever felt the enemy saying, stop, trust God, stop trusting him, stop living this life, stop doing the right thing. The enemy is trying to destroy your trust. And while the word trust is used in there several times, it's also implied in every verse. It's implied in every single verse here. And it's implied even in the negative commands. So let's look at the negative commands first. And just depending on what kind of personality you are, I don't know what personality you are. They say some are uh, the glass half empty or the cla- get glass half full. Okay, some are positive, some are negative. Some people notice negative statements first. Some people notice negative neg- statements first. So let's see which one you noticed first. Here's the negative ones. Um. It says, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. Verse 7, it says, be still in the presence of the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. And then it says in in verse 8, don't stop or stop being angry, turn from your rage, do not lose your temper, it only leads to harm. These are all negative commands. You know, they're saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. So as we begin to look through it, we begin to see what it says. In fact, verse 8 in the New King James Version says this, Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It will only cause you harm. Now think about that. How is being angry at the wicked going to cause you harm? I'm trying to help us here. How many of you ever went to work and you're slamming things? You're throwing things around and you say, man, I got it terrible. Uh, This is happening and that's happening and nobody has to go through this and nobody has to go through that and nobody has to do this. Only I have to go through this and only I have to go through that. You say, man, that's terrible, Chad. There are people like that? have ever had those emotions? And see, this is what the enemy does. The enemy's like, there's no sense in doing good. There's no sense in doing the right thing and and it's saying, cease from that. It's a command. You know, it's a sin if God's saying, don't do it, and you're still doing it. If he commands us, don't do it, then how many know it's a sin to do it? And so we got to stop doing that. we got to stop getting up for work in the morning angry. We've got to stop going to work in the morning and taking it out on everybody at work because we're mad about not having trust in God. <laughs> Amen? All right. We need to forsake wrath. In fact, it says, do not fret there or do not worry. How many know if we're worried, we have wrath toward other people. If we're doing these things, we, we've just got to start being obedient to God here. In fact, he's saying, um, I told you trust is, in, it's impl- it is a, He's implying in every verse that we need to trust. So when you look at a negative verse, it's a little harder to put that in there. The way that we trust God with this negative thing is, quit being irritated. See, we're used to understanding how to trust God with something positive, like do this positive thing to trust God. But what God's saying is, in order to trust God, you have to stop being irritated. You have to stop being angry. You have to stop being full of wrath. You have to stop doing these things and that's how you show that you trust God. And uh, if you don't do those things, what are you showing? I don't trust God. And so, very good advice here. And then he says, don't envy wrongdoers. Boy, this is a tough one. Don't envy wrongdoers. Can I ask you a question? If... If greed is wrong, and the Bible calls it idolatry, and it talks about the work of the flesh as greed, and we're envious of people that have something, let's put two and two together here. If the world around us is greedy, and we're envy because of things that they have because of their greed, then what's that say about me? It means my motivation, it says something about me, church. How many understand that? If the world is eaten up with greed and materialism and everything's about the things you have, in fact, do you know that the world says it's not about the things you have, it's about your family? Well, sometimes I think God withholds things just to see if that's true. Let me say that again. I was so deep. Don't you think that sometimes God withholds things just to see if it's really true that people are more important than things, but we're mad because all we have is our family and we don't have things. (laughs) And so God is trying to do surgery and God is through David here is just saying, Hey, there's something in our heart when we envy the wicked, we're envying people that are full of greed and materialism. How many think that America is materialistic? They're materialistic. And if we're envying materialistic people, guess what we are? Materialistic. (laughs) You say, well, what's that have to do with me being happy and loving God? Well, if you're constantly envious of people that have things that you don't have, you're gonna always be mad. In fact, there was a preacher several years ago, and I wish I could have found the book. Uh, I never did find the book, but I remember what he said. He said that there was a guy... There was a really good friend of his that wrote a book, and I've told you about this before, but he wrote a book about the things that people own around the world. And so he went around the world and he went to lots of different nations. He went to villages. He went to the poorest people in the world. He went to the richest people in the world. And he went to their front yard and he said, hey, I'm writing a book. Take everything that you own and put it in your front yard for his book. So he would go to places where they had dirt floors and they would bring everything out and it would take about 10 minutes, literally. Then he'd go to other places where it would take maybe a day. And then there were places in America where they literally were moving stuff for days to get it in the front yard. Everything out of the barns, everything out of the house. How many think that's true? And so then what he did, which was really clever, he took pictures of every place and then he wrote an emotional profile of each person, and he found out that the happiest people had the least things. He said, "Man, that can't be right. That can't be right. It'd have to be the ones that, the longer they took to put stuff in their yard, the happier they were. No, it was the other way around. The ones that had less seemed to love each other more. Isn't that amazing?" In church, it says something about us if we're envious of people that have things that we don't have. I'm not saying you can't have nice things. I'm just saying that a lot of nice things have us. And we've got to be very careful about that. He goes on. And he says two words here. He says, Stop being angry and turn from your rage and do not lose your temper. Because the word that he uses there for, one word see, when he uses, when he says to, um, see when he says don't worry and don't fret, this is fascinating. He says don't worry and don't fret or don't concern yourself with the wicked. You know this, mean, this word means to burn slowly. It's a reflexive, Stem on a Hebrew word that means to burn slowly. So he says, Don't work yourself into a slow burn. And then when he says, Don't be angry, this is a Hebrew word that means the flaring of the nostrils. How I many have ever done that? Here comes the nostrils, and some of you know he's mad. He's mad. I see the nostrils flaring. Second word is wrath comes from a word that means hot to the point of rage. Isn't it amazing that um, these kind of emotions can happen just because of what other people are doing? How much of our life is controlled by other people? Think about it. How much of our life is controlled by other people? And so he's addressing something here that I think is pretty important. I think David, as an old man, has some great insight here. I think uh, Solomon had a great person to learn from here. In fact, what we're saying is, God, I don't like the way you are doing things. God, it's not fair. God, I don't deserve this kind of treatment from wicked people. Bottom line is, I'm not going to trust God. I'm angry about injustice toward me. I'm angry about the reward that I've gotten. What do all these statements tell you about what's going on in your heart? I think I can run life better than God. Think about it. And you say, oh man, let's, let's preach about the wicked, man. Let's, let's do a fireballer about the wicked. What, what, what business do I have with people that aren't Christians? You know, God wants us to have a blessed life. God doesn't want us sitting around burning slowly, nostrils flaring, anger because of what's going on and what people are doing to us. In fact, you say, well, it's righteous anger, man. They shouldn't treat me that way. And you know, there's a sinful anger and a non-sinful anger. If people are being abused and there's an injustice and you're there to help that person, that's probably a righteous anger. But if it's you, (laughs) it's probably a selfish anger. And God is, um, David's going to give us a solution here. Now he goes into the positive commands. And so these are the ones that are mixed in with the negative ones. And sometimes they're hard to notice. David in verses three through nine mentions the Lord five times. And then five times he uses a third-person pronoun. He's saying the antidote is found in God. So you say, Well, man, I, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be mad. I want to be I want to have peace. I want to have joy. I want to be a happy person you know i don't want to be led around by people and their emotions how how easy is it to do one night of work how easy is it to get angry and be frustrated and be frustrated at life and here's the antidote verse three trust in the lord and do good you say well i do that all you know how hard that is you know how hard it is to continue to do good when things are falling apart we do good when things are going well, but truly trusting God is doing good when things are falling apart. When people slander you, when people say all manner of evil against you, what does Jesus say to do when that happens? Pray for them when they despitefully use you. When they say all manners of things, all manner of things against you, pray for them. When they use you despitefully, Jesus said, Pray for them. And so God is trying to give us an antidote. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will sit, live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord. You know how hard it is to take delight in the Lord when your nostrils are flaring and you're slow burning to a hot anger? Tell that person to trust in the Lord. You say, well, Chad, I do it all the time, man. I listen to worship on the way to work. I listen on home from work. I'm writing songs while I'm working, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of like David, you know. You tell that scripture to the version of you whose nostrils are flaring to a slow burn, working itself into a hot anger, all right? Take delight in the Lord and He will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord, trust Him and He will help you. And then he goes on in verse 7, Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. So let's look at the positive ones he says here. He says, put on trust in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? It means when it seems like everybody around you who's doing wrong is winning and you're losing, trust God. Because what's God going to do at the end of this thing? If, if life is a game, which I don't want to underplay life, life's hard, but if life is a game and rules have been made, what is God saying the rules are going to be? The rules are going to be at the end of the game, the meek will inherit the earth. Those who trust in me, I will reward them. If they diligently seek me, I am a rewarder of them you say, well, why am I not getting it now? Because the game's not over yet. Paul or David is old and he's saying of what he's seen through his whole life and what's going to ultimately happen with the righteous. It says, put on trust. So even when everybody else seems like they're winning and you're losing, I still am going to trust the Lord. Uh, put my whole trust on the Lord and let him vindicate me in time. You say, where's that at? It says it right here. Wait patiently for him to act. You know how hard that is? But, but don't you understand they're saying everything about me, saying I did this, saying I did that, making me look bad. How many have ever waited for God to vindicate you? And he just says, wait patiently. It's okay. It's okay. And how many know if you're righteous, how many know you're going to have constant attacks? The more you do for God, guess what's going to happen? You know who the most persecuted person who was slandered more than anybody in this world ever was Jesus Christ. In fact, you know how much he was slandered? He was so slandered that they felt they had a right to murder him. They executed him for everything they accused him of. That's how slandered he was. (laughs) And so he says, if it happened to me, guess what's going to happen to you? So you're going to have days that you're going to be tempted To have the nostrils flaring, to have the anger, and you say, well, man, Chad, I'm glad you've risen above it all. I mean, no, this is for all of us. We've got to go to the Lord, say, Lord, help me today. I want to go today. I want to have a good attitude. I want to treat people well. I want to do the right thing. I want to have faith in my life. The next one is put on obedience, trust in the Lord, and do good. Good. That means put on obedience. In fact, this is interesting. The other versions, this, this Living Translation does terrible in this verse. The other version says, "Do good, dwell in the land, cultivate obedience." Another version says, "Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and feed on His faithfulness." See, that one just sounds like you're eating food. But he's saying, "Feed on my faithfulness. Feed on obedience. Cultivate obedience." Let me know the greatest time to learn obedience is when things are going perfect. No. The best time to learn obedience is when it feels easier to do something else. When it's easier to do the wrong thing and you still do the right thing, that's cultivating obedience. That's feeding on God's faithfulness. Saying, God, I'm going to be faithful no matter what, and I know you'll be faithful to me. And that's hard sometimes, but this is what God's calling us to do. Put on patience. I already talked about that. Put on humility. In fact, do you know that this place, it's, in fact, he says, the lowly will possess the land and live in peace and prosperity. Do you know who quoted Psalm 37? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, was quoting David here you know that the meek will inherit the earth? Now when will we inherit the earth? We're going to die and we're going to inherit the entire earth. Do you understand that? Has that hit you yet? If you're a person of faith do you understand that we will be the wealthiest people the world has ever known? The Rockefellers and the Rothschilds think they've won the game. The wealthy of this world think they've won the game. How surprising is it going to be when the game's over? And they say, those aren't the rules of the game. The game's different. It's for those who are faithful. God has always been a rewarder of those who do the right thing. And you say, well, it doesn't look like that right now because the game's not over until the judgment seat of Christ. And when that happens, guess who will inherit the earth? The righteous, the obedient, the godly. And so we have to understand that, church. We will inherit the earth. Jesus quotes that verse from David. The second section, real quickly. It starts in verse 12 and it says, But the wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance. How many know there's a hatred for those who do the right thing? They like to laugh. They like to say, well, look, God's not even blessing you. I've got this and I've got that. It says they snarl at them in defiance. Here's what the Lord does, though. But the Lord just laughs at them. He sees that their day of judgment is coming. Isn't that harsh? The world that doesn't live godly is laughing at us, snarling at us, defiance. They're plotting against us. But God laughs at them and says, your day of judgment is coming. Isn't that scary that God says that if you're not righteous? It says the wicked draw their swords, they string their bows. they want to kill the poor and, and the oppressed, they want to slaughter those who do right, but their swords will stab their own hearts, their bows will be broken. It is better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich. For the strength of the wicked will be shattered, but the Lord takes care of the godly. Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent. They will receive an inheritance that will last forever. They will not be disgraced when there are hard times. Even in famine, they will have more than enough. But the wicked will die. The Lord's enemies are like flowers in a field. They will disappear like smoke. The wicked borrow and never repay. But the godly are generous givers. Those who the Lord blesses will possess the land. Those he curses will die. The Lord directs the steps of the godly, delights in every detail of their life. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young and now I am old, but I've never seen the godly abandoned, their children begging for bread. Godly always give generous loans to other, and their children are a blessing. Now a few financial things here. How many know that we're in a very tough financial time right now? And so this is some great financial advice from King David. Somebody who's understood how to be poor, how to have plenty, how to live off the land. He's done a little bit of everything. And so I wrote down a few areas. Number one, the Lord will provide for your needs, but your needs may not be what you think they are. You notice how he says it's better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich? Sometimes we say, God, provide for my needs. Give me everything the wicked have. I mean, know that's a dangerous prayer to say, give me, give me, give me, give me. And if every prayer that you have is, Lord, give me something, then there's something wrong with our prayer life. The Bible says that God will provide for your needs and he will give you the desires of your heart. I mean, know that if you have a good prayer life, God will provide for your needs and He will give you the things that He sees fit to put in your life. If every prayer you have is a greedy prayer, then what are you going to end up with? Lord, give me this. Well, I don't know if I want you to have that. Give it to me anyway. Lord, give me this. Well, I may not want you to have that. Give it to me anyway. Uh, God, give me this. I don't. And you understand what's happening in America is we're so greedy that every prayer that we pray, is give me, give me, give me, give me. And God saying, hey, wait a minute. Let me give you what I think is best for you. Let me provide for you your needs. The second thing, you may only have a little, but it will be enough. Um, you may f- You may struggle at times, but you will not fail. Because it says in verse 24, though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. So this is a man speaking from his experience. Notice he said, I, three times. I was young and now I'm old. I have never seen the the righteous struggle. Uh, He's saying that there are times the righteous struggle. David himself, remember the incidents I told you about? David struggled at one time. David was fighting to even eat at one time. But God was directing his steps God was caring for him. God would not let him fall. Against all odds, David always made it. And that should be an encouragement to you that God, when you are righteous and you go through something, how many know God does it to teach you? God does it to train you. Do you know why God is teaching and training you? He was preparing David to be a king. David struggled. He's preparing you To be a righteous person that that scripture says shines and is a shining example to the world. Do you think God wants to elevate greedy people? Or do you think God wants to elevate people who are generous? People who live godly lives no matter what happens? God will take you through some things to make you the person you need to be. Don't be discouraged. He won't let you fail. But he will train you. The next thing. And I'm going to close here in a second. The Lord will sustain you through the toughest times. It says, for the strength of the wicked will be shattered, but the Lord will take care of the godly. Listen to these other verses here. Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent. They will receive an inheritance to last forever. They will not be disgraced in hard times. How many have ever been, feared being disgraced in hard times? God says you won't be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine, you will have more than enough. How many see the direction the economy is going? How many have ever worried about that? The Lord says, you won't be disgraced. You'll have enough during famine. It says, the Lord's enemies are like the flowers in a field. They will disappear. It says, but the godly are generous givers. Those the Lord blesses will possess. The Lord directs the steps of the godly, delights in every detail of their life. You understand? God's saying, I delight in every detail of your life. And then number five, or my last one here. David says, Once I was young, now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. Now this scripture has been quoted so many times. They say, well, see, nobody will ever beg for bread because they're God's righteous. But how many know this is David sitting back as an old man, having been the young man who at one time was begging for bread? Let me see that. And what he's saying is if a person consistently lives a righteous life, God may allow you to struggle for a moment, but do you understand the wisdom that He will give you? And that wisdom is being given to you to bless you. God wants to bless your life. So if you're struggling right now, continue to be generous, continue to do the right thing. God promises to bless you. He wants to make you the kind of person that he can bless with abundance. And that's why David, as an old man, can sit back and say, yeah, I beg for bread, but ultimately God provided in my life. Look, I'm a king now. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. So important to get the context of that, that psalm. Hallelujah. Worship team. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this psalm, Lord. Lord, you care about every detail of our life, Lord. You care about our struggles. You care about the difficult circumstances, Lord. You care about the insults, the slanders, the things that people do against us, Lord. The people that try to hurt us, harm us, Lord. But, Lord, you have an expectation of how you want us to live, Lord. Lord, you want us to be different, You want us to be blessed. You want us to shine like a light in a dark time, Lord. You want us to bless people when they hurt us, when they curse us. You want us to bless them, Lord. You want them to see our good works and glorify you, Lord. And, uh, Lord, I ask you that you can do that in our life, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, I just want to invite you through this song. Find a place to pray. And uh, then I'll close in a word of prayer. But just uh, if you need prayer, maybe you're going through something hard and you say, Man, I don't know if I can love people when they're being like that towards me. I don't know if I can trust God when I don't have the money. I don't know if I can uh, be generous when I'm struggling. I don't know if I can uh, pray for somebody who slanders me. And God's saying, you can. You can do it. I've made you to stand out at work. I've made you to stand out in your life. I made you to shine like a bright light in this world. So find a place. Just just ask the Lord if you need prayer. We're here for you. Hallelujah. It is well my soul. Praise the Lord close in a word of prayer and i apologize i didn't realize it was that late sometimes when i'm teaching it feels like 10 minutes literally i'm sorry uh, if you ever have to leave early or uh, come late i understand but let's close in prayer heavenly father we love you and uh, lord we genuinely want to live um, in a way it's pleasing to you lord um, we love you and uh, help everybody lord strengthen us to do the right thing lord live the right way, Lord. In your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah.